And if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 15. So glad to see all of you here this morning. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors. My name is Grant Call, and it is a delight to have you with us this morning. We'd love to get to know you better. Uh, We are going through the Gospel of Mark, and we are at Mark 15. I am so glad you're here on this Sunday. Uh, There was uh, years ago, there was a 14-foot bronze uh, crucifix of Christ at a cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it was put there in 1930 by a Catholic bishop. Uh, It was estimated value at that time about $10,000, but uh, years ago... There, this is a special category of person that does this. In this case, it was a group of them. They actually came to the cemetery at night, and they actually sawed this, uh, this cross down, and police believed that they somehow loaded it up on a truck and hauled it away. And they thought that probably what they would do with it is to cut it in pieces and sell it for scrap. And the estimated value they thought they could get from a 900-pound cross like this, they estimated they probably got about $450. Clearly, these thieves didn't see the value of the cross. You know, and that really is the issue, seeing the value of the cross. There are so many people that really don't understand Jesus They don't understand the significance or the implications of his life. They don't know him, and they really don't understand the significance of the value of the cross. When we come to the text that we are at today in Mark chapter 15, we see that it is the suffering and the cross of Jesus that provides this window into the heart of God If you're here today and you really want to know God and his heart, you don't want to settle for superficiality, you don't want just somebody to come and pump you up with a few nice words, you want to know the heart of God, all you have to do is open up the gospel account beginning in Mark 15, verse 15, and you will see the heart of God on display. Because what Mark presents to us is the significance of Jesus, Jesus on the cross. And I'd like to just ask you, How well do you know Jesus at the cross? I want you to know that your life and your worship will be determined to the degree that you understand the value of Jesus at the cross. If you're a person that like, "Eh, worship's really not that important to me, not really into it, um, My life is not centered on Jesus. I've got so many other competing allegiances and loyalties. Perhaps you don't really see and value Jesus at the cross. And that's why this text is so incredibly important. Jesus' complete humility is what makes our salvation in him a reality. And we see the complete humility of Jesus demonstrated in his sufferings. There is a classic text in Philippians chapter 2 that presents to us Jesus and why he came. It says in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you want to see what this profound humility looks like, that's what you find beginning in Mark chapter 15. The complete humility of Christ is seen in his sufferings, first of all, from the hands of the Romans. Let's take a look at it beginning in verse 15. We see that there has been, as we've gone through this gospel account, there has been the betrayal by Jesus. There has been Peter's denial. There has been this disciples, they've all fled. Then Jesus is brought to this kangaroo court among the Jewish leadership and all the mocking and the accusations of blasphemy, although he happens to be God. And then they hand him over to the Romans. And the Romans, in their three-phase trial, can find nothing wrong with him. He's declared innocent twice by Pontius Pilate, once by Herod Antipas. They don't have anything that they can pin him on. And yet, we find in verse 15, things are out of control. And you want to see what politicians look like in consummate evil? Look at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate, having been awakened early in the morning, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. His wife had even warned him. He can't find anything wrong with him. But yet he saw that the crowd would not be satisfied unless they had the bloodshed of Jesus. And so wishing to satisfy the crowd, he actually then has Barabbas, this insurrectionist, who is probably to die that day. He has Barabbas released and Jesus takes his place. And then after this transaction takes place, you see it right here in the text, he had Jesus scourged. They used a whip called a flagellum. This would be a, like a wooden handle, and with it had the straps of leather. At the end of this leather would be bone, metal, and even at times pieces of glass. And soldiers that were trained in the art of actually scourging someone could take a person to about an inch of his life. It was referred to as the half-death, and actually many people died uh, from scourging. It could lacerate organs, um, and you oftentimes didn't survive it. And they would do this before they crucified someone. And so Jesus was scourged. He is at the halfway death. He is barely hanging on. His body is in tatters. And then in verse 16, then the soldiers took him away to the place that is the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. So they take him to the praetorium, which was, folk, which was built at the northwest part of the temple. It was even taller than the temple so that the sentries could watch all that was taking place on in Jerusalem, especially on the massive temple mount. where This was the feature piece. It was the center place, place of all of Jerusalem. It was massive. And this is where all the Jewish people would come, especially on a feast like Passover. And so they're watching. And it's there that they bring Jesus. This, And it says that a Roman cohort. Did you see that? They called together the Roman cohort. So we saw this last week. A Roman cohort is one-tenth of a legion. It is 600 soldiers. So those soldiers that weren't on duty at that time are all called together to watch this spectacle. 
And I want you to see it in its full effect. They, verse 18, excuse me, verse 17, they dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So a part of the Roman uniform is that they would wear this cloak. It was crimson in color. But they found one that was faded and old, faded out by the sun. And, And crimson, when it fades... It has a purple hue to it. And what they're doing is they're going to play a game with Jesus. And they're going to dress him up as a king. So they put this cloak on him. And then they find and put together a crown of thorns. Because after all, a king would wear a crown. And so they give him one. And they force this on the head of Jesus, which would cause blood just to kind of like run all over his head and his face. And notice after they do this in verse 18, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. In Latin, it's Ave. And what they're doing is they are treating or at least giving the lip service as they would like a Roman emperor. Like this is what Caesar would receive. They would call out, Hail. And they would fall down to their knees and bow down. That's what the emperor expected. And so they are mocking Jesus And they are falling down before him. And even verse 19, the charade continues. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. So uh, on festive occasions, uh, the emperor would have this um, scepter that he would carry. But they find this reed and they put it in Jesus' right hand and they use it to mock him, and even to beat him with it. You see, all of this was a part of Roman history in terms of how soldiers treated their prisoners, especially those who were involved in insurrection. It was referred to as the king's game. And what they would do is they would have, and here's actually a picture. This is a Roman-era etching uh, inscribed on a floor. It's actually pretty large. And they would place, in this case, Jesus on one of these squares. They would roll dice, and they would move them around in most humiliating, vicious a fashion. It was all part of a game. And so they have Jesus all dressed up. They mock him, beat him, take that reed that's to mimic a scepter. They're rolling dice. And I want you to know that the crowds would all be watching this, taking it in, likely cheering and jeering. And all the Roman troops that weren't on duty are all taking part of this spectacle. And it's interesting because Jesus had told his disciples, this is going to happen. You remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus had predicted that the Messiah, that he was going to be treated this way. In fact, he said, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. But when Jesus spoke those words, he was basically reiterating a prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, where Isaiah 700 years prior to this event said, you will know the Messiah because this will happen to him. And it says this, can't you hear it? I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheek 
to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Everything that God had sovereignly declared and prepared is coming into exact fulfillment. And then verse 20. After they had mocked him and they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, they led him out to crucify him. Standard procedure is that Jesus, at this point, would be turned over to the one who is called the exactor mortis, a centurion who is trained in the art, the macabre art of crucifixion, to bring ultimate torture. With every condemned criminal, there would be a squadron of soldiers, four soldiers, that would be assigned to that prisoner. Their job was to prevent anyone offering aid or somehow trying to provide some sort of rescue. And the centurion would oversee this crucifixion. And so here they are, and you see that they're leading him out. When they would lead the prisoners out, these condemned criminals, and in case Jesus, who's innocent, they would have to carry, each one of them, their own beam, the cross beam, the patibulum. And they didn't carry the entire cross, which weigh about 250 plus pounds, but they would carry the beam in which they're going to be nailed to. And they would force them to drag it through the streets. And with this, they took a placard with a rope, and on this wood, they would write down what the crime was. And this was all done as they would drag them through the streets, in this case, Jerusalem, to inflict maximum humiliation. For the Romans, this was very calculated. You see, they wanted to strike the absolute fear into every single person that if you should even so much as think to cause an insurrection, to go and lead a revolt against us, this is your future. Take some pictures, emblazon it in your mind. This is what will happen to you. And so Jesus, at a point of complete weakness, I mean, think of it, he's, he's been up all night. He's been taking abuse and beatings for hours upon hours. He's been shredded to about an inch of his life through a scourging. And he is obviously in a very weakened state. And he can carry the cross no more. I mean, think of it. The humiliation. The brokenness. He is, has all human weaknesses but sin. And verse 21 They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Simon was just one of thousands upon thousands of pilgrims who would gather for the Passover. He is from Cyrene. This is the North African city on the Mediterranean coast. And there is a large community of Jews in Cyrene. And the Jewish people would make every point, if at all possible, to be at the feasts, the three feasts that they celebrated in Jerusalem, but especially Passover. And so he has come. And like others, it's earlier in the morning here, it's a, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. Obviously, people would just be gathering, watching these people, but they would hear that one of these that are being going to be executed is Jesus that Jesus of Nazareth 
So people are like, what? Wait a second here. The one that they are like, hail king, of, you know, the son of David, putting out the palm branches and the garments. Yeah, that one, and that's him. And he's, and he's dragging that beam. But Jesus can gra- drag it no further. And whether he collapses in it and that beam collapses on top of him, we don't know, but we do know this. They pressed into service. It's a technical term. It means to commandeer a person or their property. And the Romans could do this at any time. If they wanted you to carry their pack, their armor, their weapons, or they saw a need, they could demand it out of you. And so Jesus collapses, perhaps that beams on top of him. Soldier looks, and he's looking for a strong guy. And there he is, Simon. You, pick it up now. You don't argue because you're next, right? Tem- I mean, I want you to know the tension's running high, and Simon doesn't have a choice. I'm sure he was greatly inconvenienced. This is absolutely nothing what he wanted. He was just trying to see what was going on. But this great inconvenience for Simon became the door of his salvation. Because the only reason that he would be named is if he was a known believer. And notice, not only do they, do they name him, but they also, there is this in parentheses, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. These two men were, were known Christians. This gospel of Mark was originally went to Rome. And the Roman Christians would know these two boys of Simon of Cyrene. It's interesting in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16, when they're going through, Paul is addressing like all of these people. In Romans 16, verse 13, he, he specifically points out Rufus and his mother, the wife of Simon Cyrene, as noting their great faith that Rufus is a choice man. It all gets started when Simon is selected by a Roman soldier to carry the cross of Jesus. Don't you see the power of God's sovereignty on display? And verse 22, then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for the skull or skull. And they take him. We're not sure of the actual location. There are two that seem to be rather prominent as the likely places. One is referred to as Gordon's Calvary, okay? And it's to the north of Jerusalem. They would always crucify by Roman law. It had to be outside of the city, but they would always do it in places that were well-traveled so everyone would see this. So there is perhaps this place in the north, or there is another place uh, there to the west of Jerusalem. It's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. We don't know exactly which one. Nor do we know why it's called, uh, why they referred to this place as Golgotha, the skull. Could be because lots of people died at Golgotha. Maybe there were a lot of tombs around Golgotha. Or perhaps the stone feature itself, the hill itself, looked like a skull. But you know what's interesting? You know what the uh, Latin word for Calvary is, don't you? Calvaria, right? And we sing about it. Calvary. You ever sing about that? Like, what are we actually talking about? Every time you say that word, it's the word skull. It's referencing this event. And it's here 
at this place called the skull, verse 29, that they tried, 23, excuse me, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So what the Romans would do when they were about to crucify him, right before they are going to drive in these about five to six inch nails, kind of the equivalent of like a railroad spike, but much sharper, right before they would do that, they would give them this mixture of myrrh and wine. It had a numbing effect. And don't get the idea like, wow, the Romans were actually like showed a little bit of mercy right there. No, they did this because right before they drive those nails in, they thought that this would actually prolong their pain once they had actually nailed them to this cross. So they take this beam down, they put it against the, uh, the large post that is going to eventually be planted into the ground. Once they get that nailed in place, then they actually nail the condemned criminals. But when they give this mixture of myrrh and wine to Jesus, Jesus spits it out. Notice the text says, and maybe you missed it, but you see that in verse 23? But he did not take it. He spit it out. Jesus in no way would have his pain anesthetized, not numbed one little bit. He's going to drink the fullness of God's just wrath against sin. He is going to experience the fullness of pain. In fact, he is going to fulfill even the prophecy. And this is fascinating. In Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21, David writing a thousand years prior to this event, it says that he would actually, they'd give him vinegar and gall, but he doesn't have it. And then... Jesus fulfilling all prophecy. I'm sure the soldiers were like, what? They'd never seen anyone deny this. He spits it out. And in verse 24, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. They crucified him. All four of the gospel accounts do not go into any detail about what crucifixion looked like. And there is a reason. Because God is not seeking to arouse our pity so that we like feel sorry for Jesus, that we're drawn to him out of our own sorrow. Like, oh, that's just terrible. And so I pity him. Hence, I have some sort of affection for him. No, God does not draw us to Christ out of sympathy but so that we would see his significance and the significance of our sin. And that's why they don't go into details. In fact, uh, in, when you were in conversation, you would never speak of crucifixion or, or the details. It just didn't happen. They, were, they had seen it thousands of times. It's kind of like, I'm pretty sure you don't talk about gas chambers and lethal injections or electric chairs, do you? You're just like, There's just some things you don't really talk about. And that's how they saw crucifixion. And so they would take Jesus and they would take his hands and literally dry nails through his wrists, put his feet together and drive another nail through it. And once they had fastened him to the cross, then they would slowly lift it up and they would take that post and they'd put it in a rather deep hole and they'd get it centered and they would drop it. And when they did, your bones would start going out of joint. There's no description of how excruciating this is. And I want you to know that Jesus 
takes it all. Don't get the idea that, well, you know, Jesus is God, so he probably didn't really fully experience all the pain. Yeah, he is fully God, but he is truly man, and he experiences all of it. When I was investigating Christianity, really seriously looking at it, um, I wasn't really sure that like, Jesus even existed. And I certainly had questions like, is this book, the Bible, is this really from God? Like, how do you know that? When I was in college, I had two guys who were genuine believers in Christ. And on one particular night, Doug and Frank showed me this prophecy from Psalm 22, written by King David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know this had a profound effect on me. I realized this is not just a mere book. And it, it really drove home the reality that this Jesus, he indeed is the Messiah. I want, to, I want to read this, just an excerpt from Psalm 22. You tell me, who does this sound like? A thousand years before this event. And it says this, beginning in verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is a broken piece of pottery fragment. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, and they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Is that not profound? Do you know that crucifixion wasn't even a known form of execution a thousand years prior to this event? And to the very detail, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then, so you don't miss this, they're going to cast lots. They're going to throw dice for my clothing. And that's exactly what happens. And so, verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. In Jewish method of reckoning time, this is 9 a.m. And notice in verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So that placard, that wooden board that has the charge on there, when you look at all four gospel accounts, it says, it said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they take it and they put it above him. Now, some people say, well, Jesus wasn't actually crucified on a cross. It was more of like a T, okay? Well, actually, when you read Luke's account, it says that they placed it, this placard, above him, okay? So we got the cross and we got it right. And this, this would be written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and everyone could see it. We do find out that the Jewish leadership said, no, we don't want that written on there. But, but, uh, but Pilate was no way going to change it. He had felt like he had been blackmailed and overrun by them. And he left it. And it was true. He indeed is a king. And you know, Mark, as he's writing this, friends, we are hitting the apex of this book. 
Because remember how the Gospel of Mark begins? It begins with Jesus who declares the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 15? And here is the king, and it's written right over him. Not the king that you might expect, but the absolute king who's dying on your behalf. And notice verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. These are not petty thieves. These are fierce bandits. They would plunder, steal, and leave all sorts of wreckage, if not death. They very likely were a part of this insurrection being headed up by Barabbas. And these two, when they saw Jesus and not Barabbas, I'm sure it was confused, like, what? What? Where's Barabbas? Who's this, this guy? This Jesus? I'm sure they'd heard about him. Everyone had heard about Jesus. But he's with us? And they're crucifying him right with us. I'm sure they were shocked when they didn't see Barabbas. And then notice in verse 28, your Bible may have this like in brackets. And that's because this verse isn't found in the, the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark that we have. And yet it is directly from Isaiah 53, verse 12. And it is perfectly captures what happened because it says, verse 28, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Do you see it? Do you see the complete humility of Jesus? It's demonstrated in the suffering that he received from the hands of the Romans. But I also want you to see the suffering that Jesus endured in complete humility from the hearts of the Jews. Look at verse 29. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You are going to de- who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. Remember, this was the charge that they actually put before Caiaphas during that Jewish type of trial that they had in the middle of the night, which, by the way, was illegal. And they referenced that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said, you know, I'm going to you know, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And, like, and so they were like, hey, this guy is going to destroy like a big source of our income. He's going to destroy the temple. But Jesus was speaking of his body. And you know what's interesting? Three days later, three days from this event, he is coming back in a rebuilt body fit for eternity. And so they are... They're wagging their heads, and this is all meant to show derision. And they are trying in just this evil way to convince themselves and others that what they're doing is right because they believe there is no possible way that Messiah, the Messiah, could suffer, certainly not be crucified, couldn't happen. And the fact that Jesus is on the cross and he doesn't come down, they're like, look, We got it right. He was blaspheming. He isn't God. He's not the Messiah because if he was, he'd come down from that cross, but he's not. And so they said, we got it right in our charges. And they're trying to whip up the crowd. And they're saying, he, you know, save yourself, prove it, come down. In fact, look at verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests also along, also along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. The one thing they couldn't deny is that Jesus had indeed saved others from infirmity, demon possession, blindness, sickness, healings, 
They couldn't deny this. On three different occasions, remember, Jesus had actually raised someone from the dead. It was well known. So what they say is, well, he saved others, but he can't be the Christ, the Messiah, because he can't save himself. And so they're saying, look at this in verse 32. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Let this Messiah, Greek Christos, Christ, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe. You see, it's really interesting. These Jewish scribes, the leaders, the religious leaders, they were a bunch of phonies. They had the religious garb and they could speak the lingo, but they didn't know God and they most certainly didn't know his book that they had turned into a book of rules because they are in absolute verbatim fulfillment of what was going to be done to the Messiah. You can read about it in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. And so they're mocking him. They're mocked him as a prophet in verse 29. You see that? They mocked him as a savior, verse 31, and as a king, verse 32. And indeed, he is all three. And there's something I don't want you to miss. Notice what they're saying in verse 32. They are saying, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Do a miracle for us. You come down for the cross, and then we'll believe. Friends, I want you to know that is the world's way. You show us, then we believe. We see, and then we will believe. But do you know what Christ's way is? You believe on the evidence that you've been given, and then you will see. And I'll tell you from personal testimony, that when you come to a place that you really believe in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then all of a sudden you begin to see things. The, the scriptures just come alive. You believe, and then you'll see. They've got it all wrong. And do you see the complete humility of Jesus suffering from the hands of the Romans, from the hearts of the Jews and all their mocking? But there's one other humiliation and that is that we see Jesus' complete humility as he suffers from the heckling of the dying criminals. Do you see how verse 32 ends? And it says this, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So here you have two other guys, and they're in the throes of death. Now, the Romans had figured out that you could keep a guy alive on a cross for up to two, even three days. If you want to hasten death, you could break their legs, they often died either exposure, their body just exhausted, but oftentimes it was through suffocation. But here are these guys, they're dying, and they're abusing Jesus with their words. They're using their dying breath to insult Jesus. And friends, it seems like it doesn't get much darker than this. And yet, in the midst of the darkness of great depravity, here at the cross, we see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Luke records that Jesus was making a statement over and over while all this is taking place and while he is dying on the cross. 
It's found in Luke 23, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In the Greek, this is a imperfect tense, meaning it's an action that takes place over and over again in past time. There, weren't, there wasn't like seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. One statement he made over and over again. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And perhaps in the midst of these statements that he has saved others, and these two criminals condemned rightfully and dying on a cross, and they see Jesus and how he takes it, and they hear this statement, one of them becomes a trophy of grace. Luke records this about one of the criminals. It says in Luke 23, beginning in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know what Jesus said to him? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, that is the great promise that comes from the cross if you see yourself as a sinner, which indeed you are, and you put your faith in Jesus, the Savior, which indeed he is, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, it's at the cross, at the cross of Jesus, we find our salvation from sin. This is why he's come. He has come to die to die in the place of sinners. And all the suffering he endured, he did it for us, for the salvation that he brings. And what it does in us, it instills and infuses great faith, tremendous gratitude. You're like, God, use me, have my entire life, because I am seeing the significance of Jesus at the cross. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this statement. It costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. Think of that. Rebellious wills, it cost him crucifixion. You see, at the cross of Jesus, we find our salvation from sin. At the cross of Jesus, we find our strength in times of temptation. I mean, when you're facing temptation to lie, to cheat, steal, greed, be gluttonous, uh, to let lust run rampant, and you go off in your little fantasy world, when when you feel the pull to immorality or to be irreverent, remember Jesus at the cross. Pull this gospel of Mark out and just read these verses and watch how God gives you strength in the time of temptation. When I read these verses or when I think of Jesus on the cross, I want you to know like that is a real deterrent when I'm facing temptation. And I do, just like you. It also, when I'm focusing on this cross and Jesus dying, it, what it does is it gives me a lot of clarity when I've got some confusing emotions going on. 
And the other thing it does is it builds resolve and courage in my life when I think of Jesus on the cross. He gives us strength in our times of temptation. You know, Jesus at the cross is our supreme example of humility. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he said this. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want, to know, you want to know what humility looks like? The eternal son of God entering into humanity and suffering like this? That kind of humility, that's what God is looking to develop in each of us. Where it's no longer about us. It's all about him. And when you think of Jesus at the cross, he will strengthen you. But there's one other thing I want to point out. When you look at Jesus at the cross, you see that he is our source of comfort in suffering. The late great pastor John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. You know what? Jesus can relate to our pain. In his book, If I Were God, I'd End All Pain, John Dixon writes an account when he was speaking at a university in Sydney, Australia. He was making a presentation on the wounds of God. After his presentation, with a large group gathered, the moderator and the person that was kind of emceeing the event opened it up for questions from the crowd. And first up, was a Muslim leader on campus. And I want to just read to you just kind of this excerpt of what took place. Without delay, a man in his mid-30s, this Muslim leader at the university, stood up and proceeded to tell the audience how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe would be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. The man insisted that the notion of God having wounds, whether physical or emotional, was not only illogical, since the quote-unquote creator of causes could not possibly be caused pain by a lesser entity, it was outright blasphemy, as stated in the Quran. Dixon would later write and say that, you know, I had no knockdown argument, no witty reply, in fact, he thought that the, it was just too amicable to actually even have that kind of influence at this point. He said this, in the end, this is what I did. I simply thanked him for demonstrating for the audience the radical contrast between the Islamic conception of God and that described in the Bible. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. If you feel like you're sinking, friends, you're in some deep darkness, 
Maybe your body is breaking down or you feel like your brain is starting to fragment. When you feel like you've lost all hope in the suffering, whether it be physical, emotional, psychological, mental, or even spiritual, is so great. Remember this. Jesus comes to meet us in our suffering and he knows all about it. He took it in full. The cross reveals like nothing else in the universe, the tremendous love of God. You see, Jesus' complete humility is what makes salvation in him a reality. Let's pray.